Well, we, uh, today is a day that we've set aside to honor our veterans, and I can tell you, we couldn't have found a better person in the whole world, oh, there you are, a whole, <laughs> the whole world to come and speak today to honor our veterans and speak to us on Veterans Day weekend. Uh, we uh, have today the, uh, what's this all about? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, sir. We have the privilege today of having with us Vice Admiral uh, William uh, Dean Lee, who likes to be called Dean now that he's retired. And uh, he uh, has been in the Coast Guard since 1981 and retired in 2016 after serving nearly 36 years uh, to our country. Amen. That's a, that's a long time and uh, with the responsibilities. His most passionate thing he does now, though, is... Uh, and self-satisfying thing is he works as a volunteer in the heroin addiction recovery program in the Chesterfield jail system. And he does that weekly, and uh, he finds great joy in that. He is married to his wife, uh, Mary, and they have two grown children, and they have one, uh, or one great-grandchild today, and tomorrow will be number two. And so we prayed that it wouldn't happen this weekend. And so... Uh, it's been scheduled for tomorrow, so uh, we just are honored to have him here with us today. And it's always amazing to me how God leads people into our lives. You know, we travel around a lot, right? About the only time I post on Facebook is when I'm traveling, and I, it's kind of my diary of pictures. And uh, recently, you know, we traveled to Canada, and we brought someone back from Canada to speak to us. Remember that? Well, this time we traveled to North Carolina. Buddy and I married a couple there on the beach. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was We're going back there every year to celebrate their <laughs> anniversary. <laughs> oh, that'll be nice. We've been talking to them about that. <laughs> nice little surprise for me. Uh, and uh, afterwards, we were sitting on this deck and overlooking the ocean, and it was just a beautiful day. It was a small crowd, a small little group of people there. And uh, this uh, man began to ask me about what we did and our church, Salem Fields Community Church, and he said, I'm fascinated by that. And he continued to ask me questions, and I thought, well, that's interesting because usually people talk right off the bat tell me what they do and what they're doing. And uh, then I learned who we were speaking to. And I said, that's pretty awesome. Would you come sometime and share your story with us? And when I left, I looked him up on YouTube, as you can as well. Uh, he's going to share a little bit about that, that story. And I said, this is going to be an awesome day. So, uh, Dean, it is amazing to have you here. Amen. And uh, you, God has led you into our lives, and you're going to enjoy what he has to say to us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So this is round three. I'm going to warn you right up front. It's going to take a little longer than 20 minutes. Okay, so strap in. So I got a goal today. Um, goal number one is uh, to honor God. Goal number two is to honor our veterans. And then goal number three is to leave you with something to think about. So as I was preparing uh, for, uh, you know, my, my message today, I, I got to thinking, you know, Veterans Day, that's the 11th day of the 11th month. So let's turn into the book here and let's go to the 11th chapter or 11th book, 11th chapter, 11th verse and see what God tells us in there. And so I did just that and I want to share that with you because I built my message today around what I found 
in 1 Kings, book number 11, chapter 11, verse 11. Let me read it to you, and then I'm going to walk you to that core message by talking about some veterans and a king. And so now they, <clears throat> they're talking to Solomon, and so the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you. I will surely tear the kingdom away from you. I'll get back to that in a few minutes, but bottom line up front, that's a term that we like to use in the military when we're doing briefings because, you know, all too often we will kind of uh, stray and, and, and lose track during these long PowerPoint sessions. All of you have been there, but bottom line up front on this is I'm going to end with this. The bottom line is that Solomon is give, passing down his wisdom in his last days in the last book he writes. And the end of the matter is all of this. He's found everything else in life is meaningless. He said, but one thing, and that is this, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. The title of my message today is Call of Duty. Call to Duty. Now, I want you to understand something before I get into this any further. I believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, that he did what the Bible said he did, and this, this is the holy inspired word of God. No questions on my part. And so anything I tell you today comes from that premise. I want to talk about duty. I don't want to talk about service, and I really want to talk about humility because all too often, we get off course as individuals, and we can also drift off course as a nation when we forget about that key word. I'm going to talk today about several veterans, and I'm going to talk about a king. That king was Solomon. He was the wisest man ever. He rose to power. He kind of drifted away. He came back. We learned some, he learned some lessons. He passed those lessons down to us in this holy book right here, Words from the Wise to those who are wise enough to heed them. Before I get into any of that, though, I'd like to take a fix here today on veterans. So how many people who have ever served in the United States Army, please stand up. Everybody who's ever served in the United States Marine Corps, stand up. Air Force, stand up. Navy. Coast Guard. All right. Would y'all please come on down here to the front? Just come on down here to the front and face that way. The pastor wants to hand off some uh, little tokens of his appreciation to you. But while he do, they do that, I want to talk a little bit about these people and what this means. So there's three, about 330 million people in the United States of America. At any given time, less than 1% of that total population is serving on active duty, wearing the uniform of any one of the five branches of the, of the, of the services, All right? And if you add up everybody who's ever served for any length of time, be it two years or 32 years in any one of those branches, that sum total adds up to a little bit less than 8% of the total U.S. population. These men and women before you represent those that were willing to step up and serve their country. They did not have to do it. They volunteered. These are the servants that I admire and respect. 
So truly, truly, I say to you, I wouldn't walk across the street to meet any politician, any rock star, any movie star, any sports figure, any celebrity of any kind, but I'll drive a long distance to shake the hand of a veteran, someone willing to step into harm's way. God bless all of you. So, while he's passing those things out, let me keep going with the message. So, when I was a younger officer climbing the ranks, I took it upon myself to go out and purchase a little mission statement. You know, a lot of companies have mission statements. They, they write it and put it on a plaque somewhere in the workplace where the, where the workforce can see what the company is all about. Well, I made up my own. For I needed some guidance on a daily basis to kind of keep me on track. And the best way that I could keep that, keep that thing visible to me was that I, I, I made a nameplate. It had on the very front of it just William Dean Lee. I knew my name. Nobody came in my office. I had to be reminded because you had to get through the gate to get there anyway. But what it was there for was really what was, what was on the back of that nameplate, which was my mission statement that I'd written to myself. And it very simply said, Serve first, lead second, stay humble. Serve first, lead second, stay humble. So one of the things that I learned, I thought that the, the serving part was going to be the toughest part. But um, you guys can go sit back down when you got your, when you got your rewards there. Um, thank you. I thought the service part was going to be the hardest part, but actually... The toughest part of that whole mission statement was the stay humble part. And the reason that that whole part was so hard and the reason I want to share it with you is because as you get more powerful and you climb the ranks within the military environment, you start to, they start to, to, to give you more and more perks. And when you make admiral or general, they'll start assigning you to these big old houses. I lived in an 8,000 square foot, foot house at the Norfolk Naval Station on Admiral's Row there. It looked like something out had gone with the wind. I got to fly around in an executive jet. Um, I got to, you know, people would jump to attention when you entered a room, and there's bells and whistles when you come on and off ships, and all of that stuff can kind of get your head big. Before long, if you don't watch yourself, you get too big for your britches. And that's why God issued me a wife. <laughs> Because I could walk up to the front door of that big old mansion in the afternoon wearing them three stars on each shoulder, feeling all good about myself, you know, and I walk up there and my wife would meet me at the front door, hand me a bag of trash and say, here, put this. <laughs> how about putting this around in the back, Buster? <laughs> After that, you can tackle that litter box. <laughs> so I tell you that story to illustrate that everybody needs somebody to keep them in check to keep their egos in check. Because if you don't have somebody, life will deal you a blow to reset you. So I want to talk today about 
those kinds of things. Now, the message I got today is about those people, yes, that we've just recognized that we're willing to step up and put on the cloth of our nation, wear the uniform. But I don't want to just relegate my message to those kinds of servants, those kinds of veterans, because there's another kind of veteran that's equally important. In fact, I submit to you more important. And though that is those people who are willing to put on the cloth, the armor of God, in the form of discipleship, and go out into the war, world and fulfill our duties under the great commission that Jesus Christ handed down to us in Matthew 28. You know, every military man and woman, they understand the concept of duty. They really do. It's drilled into them. Every apostle understood it. But not every Christian understands that concept because we don't practice it enough. We don't talk about it enough. Now, military men and women, when they enter the service, they're given, we walk, we go through our careers doing what we call tours of duty. A tour of duty is a specified length of time, specified length of time. And they can range anywhere from six months. Have you deployed overseas nowadays? We had many people in here probably went and did six months or more in Afghanistan or Iraq or other places. You can do a stateside tour. It can be up to four years. But there's specified lengths of those tours of duty. How long is your tour of duty if you're a disciple? If you're a soldier for Christ? How long is that tour? When do you rotate? Well, I was having a conversation one day underneath a maple tree in my backyard during the first Gulf War when my father was still alive. Now, my father was part of the greatest generation. When World War II broke out, he, like everybody else his age, ran down to the recruiting station and he signed up and he went into the army. He landed at Normandy, and he marched all the way to Berlin with Patton's army. He never rose above the rank of E6, but he saw more in his four years of active duty in that war, in that conflict, than I saw in 36 years. He seldom talked about it. But one day, we're sitting out there, and we're, we're mulling. It's during the first Gulf War, and we're having a conversation about that very issue, tour links, because the, the joint chiefs were wrestling with that. Each service had different rotational cycles. And they're trying to figure out how to get this right. How long is too long? Where's the sweet spot? What can we afford? And I looked at my father and I said, Dad, how long was, was your tour? He looked at me. He goes, till the war was over. <laughs> I mean, I felt stupid when I asked him that question, but it was it. Those guys didn't go over there with an end game in mind. I mean, they had an end game. They had a mission, win the war, but they didn't know how long they were going to be there. They went and didn't know when or if they were coming home. And so as Christian soldiers, ask yourself, when is my tour over? And I submit to you that the answer to that is as simple as the answer my father gave me. When the war is over, when we take our last breath, he expects us to continue to hold the banner of Jesus Christ and tell others about him. The call of duty. Now, <clears throat> I asked you, for all of you military folks who are still on active duty, do you take your faith to work with you? Or do you kind of leave that here? Because it's safe here. You can come in here, you can talk about all that stuff, but we know that there's 
parameters. There's rules and regulations around talking about that stuff in the workplace. You certainly don't want to offend anybody, and you certainly don't want to get in the crosshairs of those organizations that exist on the other side of the wall, like the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, that comes after men and women who in the military services have mentioned God, or God forbid, Jesus Christ, and offended somebody. This organization had started to go after people for those kinds of things, and they had been pressing the boundaries on that to the point where you didn't even feel comfortable putting a Bible on your desk. Well, I'm here to tell you that I always had a Bible on my desk. At every command I ever had and in every tour of duty I had in between, even if I was in a staff job, there was a Bible on my desk. It wasn't my working Bible. It was a big old leather worn out Bible that was passed down to me by my mother, but it was there as a symbol. And it was, it, and I didn't beat people over the head when it came in. Very seldom talked about that in there. But it was symbolically there because it was to demonstrate to people that ever came in my office that, hey, it's okay to talk about that. It's safe to talk about that in here. And B, I wanted them to know that that was my standard operating procedure. That was where I tried to draw my strength, where I got my rules of leadership from. Oh, I failed so many times in trying to adhere to it, but it was the core, it was the fundamental book that I drew from. So I was able to make it all the way up to, to I, I had 26, 27 years in, and despite all odds, they, somehow the, the, the service made a mistake. They promoted me to admiral <laughs> against all odds. I mean, after all, I graduated second from the bottom of my OCS class. <laughs> I was the last guy that anybody would ever thought would have made admiral. I mean, I shocked them all. I especially shocked myself. But now they've made me an admiral. And when they do that, they send you off to this, uh, this executive development course called Capstone. Now, everybody on active duty, they understand what that is. It's where they send newly minted one stars from all of the services. And they clued us all together. And in my class was, of Capstone was about 48 people. And, and we meet and we at National Defense University and we get lectures there. And we go to the Pentagon, we get lectures there. And we fly all over the world in the C-17. And we basically, we spend about six, eight weeks together. And we start to develop relationships with one another because after all we're the ones who are going to have to grow up and fight the nation's wars for the next few you know seven to ten, nine years so i'm over there at the pentagon one day and we're getting close to the end of uh, of the day there and the last guy up was this uh this major general he was an air force officer and he was giving us a briefing from the joint staff I forget what the briefing was about, but I'll never forget how he concluded his briefing. So we're all sitting out there, and we're tired. We've been PowerPointed to death all day long, and this, uh, this major general had finished his brief a little bit early, thank goodness. And he was closing up his briefing book there, and he looked out at all of us as we're starting to kind of wake up a little bit there, and he says, hey, guys, listen. He goes, this is my last week on active duty. I retire on Friday. He goes, <clears throat> you know, I was where you are right now about five or six years ago. He says, and I want to share with you two things that we didn't talk about at Capstone that, that I've learned in my last five years that I just want to pass to you 
take it or leave it. And he said, thing number one, he said, don't ever forget, you got to absolutely be apolitical. Well, all right, we got that. I can't go around touting Republicans or Democrats or anybody, you know. Just stay down the middle. Stay neutral in that. That's what military people do. That's what we're trained to do. That's what we ought to do. That was a no-brainer. He said, thing two, check your religion in at the door. Check your religion in at the door. Well, when he said that, I wanted to shoot my hand up in the air and ask him the question, but everybody had already started to pack up. Everybody wanted to go, and I didn't want to be that last, that, you know, that guy. There's always that guy that wants to keep asking questions when everybody else is done, they want to go home. It really seemed, the whole statement seemed to roll off everybody else's back. But it stuck with me. Check your religion in at the door. So I said, shut up, Dean, say nothing. Oh, how I wanted to ask him. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter what the answer to that question was. What really matters was that the damage had been done. The seed of fear had been planted in us. Watch out with that stuff. Don't bring that to work with you. And this offers fell into one of two categories. He was either a strong believer, a man of faith, both a member of the armed forces and a believer, a disciple of Christ, who had been censored somehow or chastised for expressing his faith or he was not a man of faith who had was on a mission to stamp that stuff down i'll never know and i long since forgot his name or else i would have hunted him down because it's i struggled with that for several years after we had that confrontation well then so we all go, we get out of Capstone, and I, we go off to our respective roles. I had one command, I, I went to a second command, then I get stationed three years later at Coast Guard headquarters, and now I'm a two-star. And people knew, I mean, all, most of my friends knew I was a man of faith, although I didn't beat them over the, the head with it, like I said. But um, uh, I get a call one day from the, uh, those folks at the National Day of Prayer Task Force, run by... Dr. James Dobson and Shirley Dobson, his wife. And unbeknownst to me, somebody had put my name in to be uh, the speaker representing the armed forces, all of the military services at the 2012 National Day of Prayer in D.C. on Capitol Hill. You don't put in for those things. I certainly hadn't put in for it. I'd certainly never even thought about it. Never been to one. I'm frankly, I'm ashamed to admit, never watched one. But they asked me if I'd be willing to do it. And I thought, oh, the good Lord has been very good to me. How can I be disobedient and not rise to this call of duty? Although I frankly didn't want to do it, I said very reluctantly, yes, I'd be willing to do that. And so I'm signed up. I'm signing up to go do this, and it's several months away, and so I pass this information to our lawyers because flag officers and general officers have to get almost everything we do uh, approved by a lawyer if it goes outside of the confines of our service. So speaking at a public event like that, like that one, I got, had to go get uh, a, you know, a legal ruling on, and so they came back and they said, all right, Admiral, yeah, you can do that, but you got to take leave 
and you can't wear your uniform. Well, I'm thinking, oh, I don't mind taking leave. I lose leave every year. But what do you mean I can't wear my uniform? I'm representing the armed forces. How can I wear a business suit and represent the armed forces? I say, go back and get me to yes on this. Well, they squirm a little bit, and finally I found me a lawyer. You know, you can lawyer shop, and I found me a lawyer who got to yes. <laughs> so I took leave, and I went over there, and I did it. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That day was the scariest, but probably most self-satisfying day of my military career. And it's because of how this whole thing played out. A little preamble to that. We went to another course because I got selected for a three-star shortly after that. Now, when you get selected for a third star, they have a one more course they send you to, which is called Pinnacle. And so this is a much smaller group of people. This is about six or eight folks. And we're in Suffolk, Virginia, and we're getting lectures, and I mean, like, we're getting to talk to some pretty high up, very powerful people in the U.S. government, because we're the ones that are going to grow up, and we're going to lead larger portions of the U.S. military, and some of them will make four stars. And one day we're having this, this conversation with a, a retired lieutenant general who was previously, who previously served as a military aide under the Bush administration over in the White House. And he's over there to talk to us about that dance that military officers have to do, senior military officers have to do with elected civilian officials who were appointed over us, like the commander-in-chief, like the secretaries, people who wear business suits, overseeing those who wear uniforms. And it's a dance that you all know, and it's supposed to be that way. But we were having a discussion, and um, we talked about some of those generals and admirals who had fallen from grace with, uh, with the commander-in-chief and had gotten themselves crossways and gotten fired, guys like MacArthur and others. And uh, at the end of that session, he kind of concluded, and he says, listen, he says, you guys, this is your takeaway. He goes, you got to be thinking about that issue or that principle to which you would be willing to throw your stars on the table for. What would you be willing to throw your stars on the table for? Because it might come to that one day. Well, none of us really thought much about it because we didn't ever intend to get in a situation like that. I know I certainly didn't. I had evaded it all my life. I'm thinking I can make it another three or four years without having to go down that track. But Little did I know that within 12 months, I'd be standing up at the National Day of Prayer, actually willingly thinking I'm throwing my stars on the table today. And here's how that played out. So I did, we were given this script here. So the National Day of Prayer is a three-hour event. You got seven or eight speakers culminating with a keynote who has 20 minutes at the very end, and he's the big guy. That year it was uh, Pastor Greg Laurie. And so each one of us rep representing all of the branches of the, of the U.S. government, executive branch, judiciary, et cetera, and mainly, I, I ended up being in the batting order next to last. I was the guy that was going to go right before the keynote. And they made it very clear, 
The keynote has to start precisely at 11.45 because this is all being televised. And at, strictly at noon, we're cutting all of this off because we're going to start the National Day of Prayer. That triggers all these events across the country. It's televised and streamed. And so they had, to make sure that we were on track and on script, they had given each one of us a little card about the size of a business card. And mine says, Vice Admiral Dean Lee, 1124 to 1134. Notice the specificity of that. All right, got it. So I had practiced. I had written down my notes to make sure I could stay within 10 minutes, unlike what I'm going to do today. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. And so we get there. We've been in there for a little over two hours now. And the guy before me is about to wrap up. And I'm looking down at my watch. And every single one of them has gone over by exactly one minute. And then Dr. Dobson has, he's kind of, he's lingered on with some of his introductions. So we're running we're kind of way behind time. I'm thinking this isn't going to work. So over comes a moderator. And he leans down to me and he says, Admiral, he says, I'm so sorry. He says, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to flip-flop you with Pastor Laurie. You go after him. Well, I'm here to tell you, I mean, I'm thinking this, and that's not what I heard. What I heard him say, because nobody talks after the keynote, nobody. I mean, you just don't do that. What I heard him say was, we're grateful that you came, sir, but you're off the hook. You don't have to talk to him. We're going to catch up. <laughs> You're passed over. And I was never so happy to hear something in my life because I was scared. I knew there were shoal waters there if I said what I wanted to say. Good Lord took me out of the batting lineup and I sat back and I crossed my legs and I listened to Pastor Lori give an outstanding sermon. And he's finished up right on time. We've been sitting there three hours nonstop. And then what happened next, I thought, was going to change the course of events for the rest of my life. Because Dr. Dobson then takes to the microphone while everybody's clapping, getting ready to go, grabbing their purses, want to go, and he starts to introduce me. <laughs> now, my mind has been totally in neutral. I don't, I'm thinking I'm not speaking today. I'm not in the batter's box swinging. I'm not thinking about going talking. And now... In, in 60 seconds, I'm going to have to walk up on that stage, and I know I can't go up there and read them a 10-minute speech. They'll hate me. I would hate me. <laughs> so as I panic hit, hit, hit a crescendo, all of a sudden, everything changed. And I'm here to tell you that if you don't believe there's a Holy Spirit, you just hadn't touched it yet. Because that very day, right then and there, I felt this warmth come cascading down over my head and shoulders, almost like somebody pouring a warm pitcher of water over me, and it washed away all of that fear right then and there. I mean, in seconds. And it was as the good Lord was whispering to me, all right, Dean, I've got this teed up. I've re-wrecked the batting order today. You're going last. Leave those notes on that table and get up there. I'll feed you. I am clueless as to what is going to come out of my mouth, but I walk up there to that stage, and I turn, and I face that audience, and it's a sea of cameras in the back, 
And there's all kinds of really important people, congressmen, senators, you know, the kind of folks that go to those things. And when I turn and face that crowd, I go, Lord, give me something. And I started to speak for what I thought was going to be two to three minutes. And 14 minutes, 25 seconds later, I walked off that stage absolutely certain I was going to be fired. <laughs> Scared to death. Because I had laid down, I'd drawn a line in the sand that I didn't intend to draw when I went up there. That was not what was in my notes. But it really was talking about drawing the line against those organizations that have been oppressing us, trying to put us, members of the church, in a box that we can't talk about our faith, even though we're wearing a uniform. After all, we were sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution, and the First Amendment says that we have that right. You can see that thing on YouTube if you're ever inclined to, a scared admiral walking up. But as I walked off that stage, I was scared to death. And I'm going to tell you, my wife and I went to lunch like that after that, and, uh, and um, we actually started getting giddy like two teenagers because now we knew what the future was. I'm going to be fired on Monday. <laughs> and we've been talking about retiring for a long time. Before the sunset, Fox News was calling me. They want to interview me. My public affairs people were having fits. Admiral, please don't talk about this. Please don't talk about this. Don't make our job hard here. I go, don't worry, I'm not talking about it. General Boykin, Jerry Boykin, if you don't know him, strong man of faith, also a, a warrior, called me. I'd never talked to him before. I knew who he was. I had no clue how he knew me. He said, Dean, I heard what you did today. He said, I just want you to know we got your back. I'm thinking I'm going to be fired on Monday, but when I showed up at Coast Guard headquarters Monday and after this it all hit, my email was filled up, social media had spread this thing all over the place and it had kind of gone viral. There was people who wanted my head on a platter, especially folks on the, on the watchdog groups. And, and, and so when we went to the morning brief, I, I saw demonstrate one of the greatest acts of leadership that I had seen in my career. Here I am thinking I'm going to be called up to the principal's office and, and spanked. At the morning brief, the commandant comes in along with the rest of the admirals, and we get the briefing, as we always do, but there's an elephant in the room. Nobody's talking about it, but everybody knows what Dean did. <laughs> everybody knows the attention that it's been getting. And so several of my buddies has been, they, after it broke up, we're gathered around, and they're going, ah, Dean, yep, oh. Yeah. And then here comes the commandant. The commandant usually just exited and went straight to his big old four-star office, but he, came, he makes a beeline. He's coming to me, and all of my colleagues, they part like the Red Sea. <laughs> here he comes. I'm thinking, well, here it goes. This is it. Admiral Bob Papp, man of faith himself, reaches his hand out. He takes my hand. He looks at me square in the eye. Man to man, he says, Dean, how you doing? I go, I'm fine, Admiral. How you doing? <laughs> he goes, I'm fine. You have a good day. And in that moment, he sent me a telepathic message that was like this. It's like telling you, boy, don't you ever fight. Don't you ever, don't you ever go at it with the bully. But one day you come home from work and there's your son, Johnny. He's there at the kitchen table. Mom's standing over him. Tell your daddy what you did. Well, I took on the bully. 
I got expelled today, and Dad looks at him, well, you know I told you not to do that. But you kind of look at him man to man, you go, but I'm proud of you, son. Nothing else was ever said of it. Nothing else was ever said of it. God protected me from that because I tried to be obedient to him. So I want you to compare and contrast that with the military of George Washington, our first veteran, veteran number one, and the army that he stood up because here was a man who feared God. Here's a man who would humble himself and get on his knees publicly. Here's a man that created the chaplaincy in the military services. And we all know the story. He rose an army and trained it, and they went on as the underdogs, and they finally won our independence in a final, final battle at Yorktown in October of 1781. And then when his army laid down their arms, they became our nation's first veterans. They started it right there. George Washington, on December 23, 1783, he resigned his commission. He wrote a letter. And he's writing this letter to the Congress at that point. He says, I consider it my indispensable duty to close this last solemn act of my official life by commending the interest of our dearest country to the protection of Almighty God to his holy keeping. There was no ambiguity in that. To Almighty God and to his holy keeping. Well, General Washington had no idea that in six short years he'd be called back into public service as the first president of the United States. And he would go on to serve two terms as our founding father. He never deviated from his faith or talking about his faith. All the way up to the last day, and as he's standing up on that podium in his farewell address, he uses these words, telling the whole, everybody, all the elected officials and the civilians alike, he says, don't you forget this, morality cannot prevail in exclusion of religious principle based on Judeo-Christian values. And there you go from the father of our country. We went on after that because he had set the tone. And we became a very prosperous and powerful nation. We struggled. We struggled at first. It wasn't too long after that. We struggled through a civil war that divided us, both sides praying to the same God. And in the end, we formed a new union. Better than the last. Stronger than the last as a result of that trial. We weren't perfect, but... At least we were whole again. And now there's a new set of veterans on both sides of that conflict, north and south. And the leaders that followed them were also godly men. And they tried to build a government based on those godly principles. And they taught religion in school. They prayed in schools. Then we went on as a country to go to war several more times. We fought over what we thought was right. We prevailed in most. We pulled out in some. And, but we were still able, the leaders in those services were still able to talk about God without fear of repercussion. Then in World War II, the greatest generation, they shipped out to take on an enemy from both the east and the west. Two fronts at the same time in wars we did not ask for. We tried to avoid them at all costs, but we got pulled into it. 
And you know the rest of that story. And on June 6, 1944, there's the greatest armada assembled in that century, stormed the beaches at Normandy. As my father, and probably some of your fathers, were hitting that beach, the commander-in-chief, President Roosevelt, got on national radio and led the entire nation in prayer. The commander-in-chief himself led us in prayer. We prevailed. We never took that victory for granted, but we leaned on God throughout. Well, after that war was over, General Eisenhower, the great general who helped us win that war, became the 34th president. And in 1956, General Eisenhower signed into law a brand new national motto, in God we trust. In God we trust. Now, if you went on college campuses around the country and asked kids randomly, what's our national motto, they'd be all over the map. In God we trust became our national motto. But isn't it a shame that now, today, present time, our national motto has become politically incorrect. If you don't believe it, try this test. I want you to just envision a principal at any major high school, any school, anywhere in the United States, getting on the intercom system one morning and going, kids, listen up. Today, we're going to trust God. In God, we trust today. Go home, tell your parents. I'm going to tell you, I would bet you good money that before 24 hours passes, the school board, the school system is going to hear from that 8% of the people who think that that is evil. And they will be chastisement handed down, thus pushing people who actually fear God into a tighter and tighter corner. That's where we are today. So that generation that came home from World War II then produced the baby boomers. I'm one of them. The nation prospered. We rose to great wealth. The economic engine was in full bore. In the 1960s, we struggled with both prejudice and oppression during the civil rights movement. And that generation stood up. And they did what I think was right, protesting against the racial oppression. That whole movement was led by a good man, and I submit one of the five most courageous leaders of that century, Dr. Martin Luther King. He lost his life for his cause. Oh, and he made some inroads, but we still struggle with racial prejudice and injustice today. But I'm here to tell you, I don't believe we have a racial problem in this country. We have a sin problem in this country. Because Dr. Martin Luther King had it right. When he told us, do not judge a man or a woman by the color of their skin. Judge them by the content of their character. Content of their character. Oh, how we have drifted. The baby boomers then produced Generation X, and then they, the millennials. Each had life a little bit better. They all had it more comfortable. They had more things. Things that became our idols, and we all have some of them, probably parked in our driveway in the form of boats and RVs and 64-inch TVs. 
If you don't think we're worshiping idols today, take a look around your house. You can go find them in my house, and I'm ashamed of it. But we've become a nation of consumers who want more and more. And we're still not satisfied. We still got to have the newest, the biggest, the shiniest, the most technologically advanced thing that we can. We got TVs in every room and we've consumed more calories per capita than any other country on the planet. We've become entitled, ungrateful, and complacent. The sad fact is that as we have prospered, we have forgotten about God. After all, who needs him when times are good? So here we are. 2017, what would our founding fathers think of how we've handled the republic that they passed down to us? We are $20 trillion in debt. We've killed 55 million unborn children. Our military leaders are, not, are unable, like our founding father, to talk about God without fear of repercussion. We're a nation that now celebrates what this book says is wrong. We're a nation that would rather offend God than the 8% who don't believe. They got us running in fear while we wallow in our arrogant affluence. We're a nation, I submit, truth be known, that it's lost its way. All you got to do is ask the people. In a pew poll, three-quarters of our population says that we're sliding down a slippery slope of moral decay. Yet we still run around beating our chest, touting ourselves as the greatest nation on earth. Think about it. It's okay to be prideful of your country. Oh, but there is some danger that lies therein because we've become convinced of our own invincibility. Just like Napoleon did when he's standing there on the banks of the river in July of, or June of, eight, of 1815, Battle of Waterloo. He's looking over, surveilling what's going to happen the next day, and he leans over to his second in command. And he says, tomorrow, General, we will be drying our boots in Brussels when we cross that river. And the general looks at Napoleon and he says, God willing. Napoleon looks back at him and says, God's got nothing to do with this. And we all know what happened the next day. Duke of Wellington took him to task, took him down, and that was the end of Napoleon. Let's not forget what happened to Israel when they went the wrong way. The Lord scattered them among many nations for many, many years for their evil ways. They suffered great famine, but he got their attention. And what I want us to, to remember is that Solomon passed down some wisdom to us. Ecclesiastes 1.9, he tells us, hey, look, there's nothing new under the sun. History's repeating itself. It always will. Oh, some will say this, this is new, that's new, but nothing's truly new. I know technology changes. We invent new gadgets and gadgets. But the human heart and human behavior and human challenges do not change. They have not changed since those men walked this earth, and we're still facing those things today. It would do us well to learn from those lessons. 
Now, I don't care what your political affiliation is. I ask that you look across the spectrum of leaders that we have elected from all of the various parties in our country right now and ask yourselves, who among them fear God? Who among them demonstrate humility? Now, as you're asking that question, I want you to, uh, I want to close with this one last story. And this story comes from 2 Chronicles chapters 5 through 6. There's too many words in there to put up on the screen, so I'm going to give you the Cliff's Note version. So it's, uh, the setting is this, it's Jerusalem, it's the 10th century B.C. Solomon is a king, and he's in his first years as this new king after David has died and passed down the throne to him. The nation of Israel is doing very, very well now. The economy is booming. They have no debt. They have no problems. Other nations are coming to them to borrow. There's no enemies at their gate. Solomon has just finished building the temple. It took him seven years to build. Now the day's here when they're going to dedicate it. It's been advertised for weeks. The rooftops are lined. People are in the trees. It's shoulder to shoulder, almost like Inauguration Day, times 10 over here on Capitol Hill. Everybody's awaiting this big spectacle. And they've erected a stage out there in front, in the middle of the, of the whole assembly. And out comes, it's about this high, and out comes this great young king. He's tall, he's handsome, he's imposing. And he walks up on that stage. There's a whole crowd out there, the whole throng, and they come silent. And then he does something that catches all of them totally off guard. He gets down on his knees. This great king. The whole crowd is wondering, what is this? It's awkward. They don't know what to do. And so they follow suit. They get down with him shoulder to shoulder. And then the king stretches his arms out up to heaven. And what he's doing is he's symbolically portraying to everybody in that audience, although I'm a king, I'm under the authority of God. And then he prays to God. Oh, Lord, lead us, guide us, discipline us. And the scriptures tell us that at that very moment, the Spirit entered the temple and filled it. Later on that night, the king is in bed and, he has, and the Lord comes to him in a dream and he says to Solomon, Solomon, I've heard your prayer. The nation of Israel then went on to prosper. They went on to be the superpower, the most powerful country in the land. But as they prospered, they lost sight of God. Over time, Solomon forgot his own counsel and the wisdom of Scripture. Let's fast forward several decades from that scene where he's on his knees there in front of the assembly. Solomon's risen to power now, but he's drifted away from what he knows is right. He's built up an army that he was told not to build up. He has 1,400 chariots. He's got 12,000 horses. He's a superpower. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. He's taken on foreign wives who bring with them their own idols, their own gods. And that has creeped into Solomon's own life so that now Yahweh, the one true God, is no longer the single God in his life. 
and the Lord is angry. And he tells us that in book number 11, chapter 11, verse 11 in Kings. Go to Kings, 1 Kings. On the slide, please. All right. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you. And thus the beginning of the end of that great empire. So we have to ask ourselves, we now as a nation, where are we relative to this scenario? Have we crossed that line yet? This is not a feel-good message today, but it's a message that we need to absorb and think about because we have a duty. We can do something about this as a church, perhaps not as individuals, but as a community of individuals coming together. There is a correlation between humility before God and the blessings of God for nations. Correlation between obedience to God and the longevity of nations. Our nation's 241 years old. Few empires have survived past 250 years. Let us not forget what history has taught us. I submit that it is not too late to turn around if we change our ways. And I'll leave you with this. The reason that so many of these movements have succeeded in encroaching on God's boundaries. The reason that we see such rot and moral decay in our land is because these groups that are perpetrating that are passionate about their cause 7 by 24, while we, as a church, are often just passionate on Sundays. We have a call of duty as the army of God, as disciples, to stand up and take our country back and reinstitute those strong values that were passed down to us through Moses. Commandment number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Bottom line, fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you'll open our eyes and our ears, that we, the church, will start being the people that you want us to be. And that from the church you'll rise up some bold, godly leaders, men and women who will understand that without you we are doomed. Forgive us our sins, Lord. And let us, the church, become the people and voices you want us to become that you need us to become and humble us, Lord, so that we may be strong again. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, incredible message, timely message. We have our marching orders. 
We're called to duty as Christians. God has called us to be a light in a dark world. You know, it doesn't start with uh, uh, people outside to change our world. It starts with you and I, people who say that we have taken up the armor of God and that we're disciples of Christ. And so I call on you, Gay and I together, we call on you as a church to humble ourselves before God and pray and ask God to forgive us of our sins. And the Bible says if we do that, he will hear from heaven and he will heal our land. And so I want to take, I personally take the challenge that's been laid out before us today that I'm going to take up my stand and I'm going to call out and live my life, not call out, but I'm going to live my life as a shining light before God and before man. And I hope that you'll join Gay and I as we do the same. Amen. 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 And now we're going to worship. Yes. Now, if you're, on, if you're on duty, if you're called to duty and you accept your call, I want you to say amen. Amen. Good gracious, we can change our world. So let's do it, okay?
it? I'd like to say thank you to Brian Barham for bringing the color guard here. Wasn't that wonderful? And Vice Admiral William Dean Lee, we thank you so much. And to all the veterans, thank you. Thank you for active military duty. We honor you. We thank you so much for being here today. Uh, give a veteran a hug. And uh, I'm so thankful for my country, aren't you, for those that have given their lives. Praise the Lord. Thanks for being here. And uh, make sure you invite someone and come back next week. See you then.